0: the Tatas relied on the U.S. from a very early period to act as a counterweight to the British Empire and then to act uh, as a counterweight to the Soviet Union in the Neruvian period. And the U.S. being a fairly distant um, country, uh, 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 a fairly um, uninterested until the Cold War in the geopolitics uh, of British India, But one in which a lot of the technology, for example, for the steel plant that was required uh, or for the hydro transmission lines and generators and so on, it was the U.S. could provide that technology.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Lake Podcast. I'm your host, Karthik Nachepin.
0: There's an old
1: and well-known quote that you often hear when thinking about the relationship between business and politics or the role of the corporation within a nation state. What's good for General Motors is good for America. The quotes repeatedly heard at different junctures. If there's an Indian equivalent to this quote, it is perhaps that what's good for the Tata's is good for India. Now, come to think of it, this quote might not be apt. Since the role and reign of the Tata's, the largest industrial empire in India, does not just date back to Indian independence in 1947, but the 19th century during colonial times. Over the decades since, the Tatas have become synonymous with India, the family-run conglomerate that produces almost everything from salt textiles, trucks, steel, cement, cars, chemicals, and software. If there's one thread that connects the 19th century to today, it is that the Tatas have demonstrated an extraordinary capacity to refashion and renew themselves. And this is also the gist of historian Mircea Rayano's superbly researched history on the Tatas. More than anything, the Tadas knew how to navigate and exploit difficult times and powers, both colonial and the post-colonial Indian state, using them to attain a preeminent position in Indian capitalism. Consistent public support, combined with a pension to rely on external capital and expertise, helped the Tadas face and overcome difficult times particularly since 1947, when the Indian state loomed large in terms of economic policymaking. The Tata's have skillfully handled, negotiated, and traversed different sagas through the 19th and 20th centuries, and that story is captured in a splendid way in Rayanu's history. Here is Mircea Rayanu on Tata, the global corporation that built Indian capitalism. Published by Harvard University Press in July 2021. Hi, Mrisir. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I want to start by, by asking you how this project began. Um, this is a sprawling uh, corporate history of the Tadas. Um what was the first spark that ignited this project that eventually became the book? Uh, First, thanks very
0: much for having me and uh, for reading the book uh, closely and uh, really look forward to our conversation. So this project began uh, as a PhD dissertation at Harvard and I had come in uh, as a history student in 2009, so a year after the uh, Great Recession began is also a year when uh, we are already well into uh, India's uh, multiple decades of post liberalization economic growth. And I came in actually as a a historian in training of uh, somewhere on the borderline between British Imperial and modern South Asian history. And I wasn't really sure exactly what kind of topic I would work on and that indecision really persisted for a while and I want to say this and I always say this when I'm asked because I want to give encouragement to anyone out there who who may be entering into a PhD program without a fully formed project or research agenda to say that uh, it is okay and it will be okay. (laughs) You will come up with with a topic. So for a few years, I kind of moved in many, many directions but i kept coming back to the idea that i wanted to do a history project one that was grounded of course in the period of the 19th and early 20th century which was my kind of time period of focus but one that could speak to that uh, post-liberalization uh, economic political and economic landscape in india so that was uh, that those were the kind of parameters and my own history is that I was uh, born in uh, Romania in the 1980s at the uh, late 1980s at the end of the communist period and in the transition to uh, our very own kind of uh, liberalization, uh, so to speak um, which wasn't very liberal but it was certainly um, you know a time of uh, shock economic reforms. And so when I was growing up in the nineties, I saw that uh, all around me and I saw particularly the rise of a new class of capitalists, you know, the oligarchs and uh, which we saw in in Russia as well and in many other parts uh, of the world. And so I thought uh, that that was the sort of personal interest that pushed me in the direction of studying uh, uh, capitalists, firms, large firms, powerful firms. But what drew me to the Tatas was that they had been around for a very long time. They weren't new capitalists. They weren't uh, new arrivals on the scene. They had um, experienced and weathered remarkable transformations from their origins in the colonial period through independence and then through liberalization. And so I thought that they would be really the best case study for me to look at. And when I when I went in the, into the uh, literature, I found that there had been quite a bit written on the Tatas here and there. And of course, uh, there was a very venerable and uh, fascinating literature on business in colonial and early post-colonial India. But all of it took, shall we say, it, it took the business class or business groups uh, as a whole, or sometimes even our business communities. So we could talk about the Parsis or the Marwaris. There were lots of studies uh, of, uh, and of course, lots of studies of large structural changes in the economy, uh, and you know, how capital relates to the state, those kinds of uh, abstractions. And there wasn't a fine-grained empirical study of the business group uh, of Tata in particular. You know, a book length
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, treatment that would take the story from beginning yeah. through to the major uh, parts of its history and into the late uh, 20th century. And so that was uh, part of the inspiration and that was the inspiration. And then the final piece of the puzzle that allowed me to decide and, and turn in my prospectus and say, I'm gonna write a book on Tata was the archives. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Tata had opened dedicated archives, in fact, had two such archives, one in Pune and one in Jamshedpur for the steel company specifically, that meant that there was in existence the material that that a historian would need and that these archives were open and accessible, that a historian would need to tell that kind of story. And so I think that if uh, there have been great studies of, for example, of G.D. Birla by by Medha, Kudesi and, and and others the studies of Godrej and Bajaj. But I felt like with Tata, um, the archives were so much more complete and rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a case that I could have wanted to do a project on Tata, but not had the means to do it. So this was, uh, if we were to talk of the scene of a crime, I had the, that's the motive, and then I had the means to do it, and the archives provided the means. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that was going to be my next question: was the archives? Because uh, I felt it's good to get that out of the way before we move into yeah. the substance of the book. Um, what was that like going in, into the Tata archives and, and seeing this the sources and and the resources? Um, and even not other than the, the, the Tata archives themselves, did you access any other kind of archives um, for 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 the book?
0: Yeah, so I think um, most historians um, of colonial and early post-colonial South Asia, they they do the rounds at the major uh, repositories. They go to London, to the British Library, and to the National Archives. They go to Delhi, to the National Archives, and to teen Murti, and they go to regional archives. So I, I went to the Maharashtra State Archives, uh, and I did a little bit uh, in the West Bengal Archives. And uh, even the U.S. National Archives, which now happen to be uh, just a mile away on my my home campus in College Park, so I, I and and private archives, which I should mention, which are quite important, uh, the papers of the architect Otto Königsberger at the Architectural Association, the uh, TIFR archives, which are not typically thought of as a Tata archive, but of course the TIFR was. Um, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research was established by the Tatas, and those archives are in Kolaba, they're a separate archive, um, and now now a government uh, uh, owned uh, archive. So, um, so it, it was going to all these places around those two main archives. but I would say that those materials were always uh, played a supporting role, you know, I think that the one of the major contributions of the book, is that I've gone through those two archives in Pune and Jamshedpur in a systematic way. uh, And I've covered, I believe, the majority of what is held there, uh, of course, filtered through my own preoccupations and interests and analytical lenses. Um, So uh, it it is, and it was interesting because on many subjects you would have, for example, there would be uh, one side of the correspondence of, say, J.R.D. Tata Nehru or J.R.D. uh, or or Nehru and um, uh, the steel minister and uh, somebody in the Tata's, uh, one part of that correspondence might be in Pune, another might be in Jamshedpur, and another might be in Delhi. So a lot of it actually requires fairly rigorous uh, cross-checking, and uh, sometimes, of course, there's also dead ends where you where one side of the where one uh, side of the correspondence is available, the other one isn't. So you have to kind of extrapolate and and work with what you have. So that was always That's a big it. challenge, and not knowing necessarily uh, where the materials would be located uh, for each particular question or topic that I was interested in, and also, um, you know, uh, what I wasn't seeing. You know, and the, these are questions that, of course cannot really be answered in terms of what I didn't find. But one always wonders, was there something in the Bihar State Archives, which I fully confess I did not go to, that may have, uh, that may have actually been crucial to supplement what I found in the Jamshedpur Archives. So, you know, but these are, I think, inevitable uh, problems that the historian faces with limited time and resources. Now, the archives themselves, I thought they were fascinating as a place to visit, not just to work in. I didn't view them only instrumentally. I didn't walk into them blind uh, as a with a kind of extractive mindset. Let me just come in here and suck all the documents out in a vacuum tube and, and get out. You know, I really spent time there. I worked with the archivists closely. I saw how they worked. I talked to them. I tried to understand the logic of how Tata structures its own past and its own history. Mm -hmm. And one of the most fascinating things about them is, as I write in the book, is that they are public. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, among many business families in India, and of course that is their prerogative to do so, they choose to keep their material secret and they choose to keep their business records within the family or within the firm and not open them up to the outside. And that is a great loss for historians, but of course, their prerogative. Uh, uh, there's no freedom of information requests to the birlas <laughs> or the ambanis that one can make. Um, but the Tatas deliberately chose to make them public and uh, chose to endow their archives with a public function. Now in Pune, it's part of the TMTC, the Management Training Center, and so it is a resource for the company. Um, people come to be inducted in the history of and culture of the group there. Uh, you also have you, you have school groups you have people can go visit the kind of museum portion uh all these things they have a replica of jrd's office which is very cool uh and uh and uh, in Jamshedpur, of course because it's a company town the tata archives occupy a very prominent place as the kind of public face of the steel company if you have visitors coming in they they might take a tour of the plant or or mm-hmm. Uh, might see the works, but they will also uh, be taken to the visitor center, which is located in the same complex of buildings as the archives. And they have exhibits and sculpture and art and a very interesting architecturally designed by Hafiz contractor, the one in, um, uh, in Jamshedpur. And it looks quite striking and it is uh, a, a, just a fascinating place. They have a great art collection, fascinating place to be and to to just observe and to think about how the history of this group is being uh, preserved and presented to the public.
1: Um, that sounds fascinating. Um, been, I really need to go to jump to it for next time too. To, yes, I highly the, recommend the visit, The archives yeah. and the office. Uh, so, so the books organize really well. There is a clear structure uh, to the six chapters, so three before World War II and three after and what they cover thematically. So the three themes are um, Tata's overseas connections uh, with the US and East Asia, um, control over land and resources, and scientific and technocratic expertise, right? Um, How did you settle on these themes to write a much more focused history on the Tata's? And, and And I ask this because you could have written a book on any of these themes through the Tata experience, right? But you're choosing to do the opposite, write a history of the Tatas through these themes. That's a, actually a
0: very interesting, really interesting observation because much of the time what I have to answer is the question about why I didn't tell a chronological story mm-hmm. uh, about the Tatas. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like I would have to make choices anyway. Mm-hmm. And those choices, and once you kind of uh, fix yourself to chronology and to uh, the the business chronicle format, you know, um, you also inevitably uh, fall into a narrative. Now, historians, uh, ever since uh, the work of uh, postmodernists like Hayden White in the nineteen seventies, historians are very. Um, Uh, We're trained to be conscious of our own, the narrative structures we put on our Mm -hmm. material. And so, but once you go that route, the business chronicle, the rise and fall, the intrepid entrepreneur, his dissolute sons, and the challenges of rise and rebirth, you get into cliche and you get Mm -hmm. into a straitjacket that's going to be very difficult to escape. Mm -hmm. So the reason, so I wanted to have a structure that was very uh, much driven by my own questions and interests now the the flip side of that which you ask about which is very interesting is why why aren't the tatas and other businesses or and other actor historical actors together uh a lens uh, uh or or in the service mm-hmm. of these uh, these three at least these one of these three or multiple of these three conceptual um you know uh big conceptual questions and i think um In some ways, the project, it it went through, as I was saying before, it went through a couple of different stages of conception. And certainly the part about land and resources and the idea of taking Jamshedpur as a central site of analysis was there in the beginning and then it kind of expanded outward. And I think if I were to criticize my book in, in, in one way, it would be that I think Jamshedpur does take center stage a little bit too much and it is, you know, very, very hard not to do. And it was mm-hmm. such an important site for the Tatas. I feel like I could have said a lot more about a place like Mitapur, the Tata Chemicals Township in Gujarat, which is an equally fascinating place. I could have said a lot more about the hydroelectric uh, companies. And there are mm-hmm. um, actually many people working or several people working on that now that I, that I know whose work will be uh, very interesting in the future to develop. Uh, on uh, the hydro companies and their relationship uh, between uh, how they knit together Bombay and the hinterlands of Maharashtra. So it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, one could have taken those big themes, one could have taken a particular site in which to put the Tatas alongside uh, other, as I said, historical actors, other forces that are going on. so it was a difficult decision not to do that. I felt that if I if I did that, I would uh, lose the ability to talk about some of the other things that interested me. So if I was mm-hmm. to write a book about land, uh, about for example the, the the sovereign corporation and its control over land, which would have been an interesting book to write, and somebody should, uh, I would not have been able to talk about many of the other things. I would not have been able to talk about. Um, you know, the business side of things, I would have not been able to talk about finance, mm-hmm. uh, about philanthropy, about mm-hmm. po- uh, politics on uh, in, in that uh, high politics, which there's a little bit of it in there, and I would have mm-hmm. not been able to talk about art and photography, which I also uh, Mentioned mm-hmm. in in one of the subsections, so it was a it was a deliberate choice to go eclectic and to mm-hmm. see if I could strike that balance between keeping a big narrative going that tells the story of the Tatas, as I said, from beginning up to the late 20th century, and then to 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 uh, also have thematic focus. And the way I like to envision it is your. Uh, you're almost like a bird flying over water, and sometimes you go down and you get the fish, right? So each of those themes is a little bit like a like a, like a fish bank in the water, where you you sometimes take a deep dive and then you go back to the surface and try to to kind of continue continue on from that higher vantage point.
1: Um, if there's a larger argument of the book, um, it is that it is that the Tata success and, uh, and 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 endurance. Um, through the decades um, is because they have this quasi-sovereign character, um, both undertaking and accomplishing certain vital state-like functions um, and also corporate functions. Did did the Tatan believe that they were discharging these different functions, however mm. sovereign or not? Mm. Uh, and how did they regard their own activities in these different um, spheres?
0: Yeah, so here I would say that me descri- me trying to connect those three themes together uh, with this framework of the state-like function is uh, a little bit of the historian's artifice. It is a little bit of, the, of me creating an analytical category for a, certain, for a set of activities, you know, um, governing the city of Jamshedpur, and uh, establishing uh, a, a school or a charitable trust uh, somewhere in entirely different parts of India and submitting a, a plan to the central government over where steel plants should be located or how Air India should be governed as a state uh, uh, corporation. Uh, all those different things, I can call a state-like function, but perhaps mm-hmm would not have been obvious to the individual agent in Tata who's doing it. Uh, Each of those activities have a different logic and indeed they have a different history uh, that makes them possible. Um, However, I do think that at least in the first half of the 20th century, uh, Jamsechi Tata and his two sons, Dorabji and and Ratanji, uh, that first and second generation, when they were building these major enterprises uh, in industry so we're talking about the steel plant the hydro dams the textile mills and then in the 1930s starting with a second wave of the airlines and the chemicals and the autos uh as jared uh, becomes the chairman in the late 30s i think that in this, in these particular moments there was a profound consciousness that the tatas were providing Uh, what I call an infrastructure to India um, that was both an industrial material infrastructure and uh, what I call a knowledge infrastructure, which they wouldn't have used that term, but they would have said, if you had asked them, why did you fund the first cancer hospital, the Institute of Fundamental Research, the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, and the Indian uh, Institute of Science? What do these things have in common? What is the reasoning behind your philanthropy? They would say something like these are institutions that India needs, that a modern nation needs, and that we as uh, private capitalists can and will provide. So there was a, profi- they, the uh, semantic articulation is going to be, they would call it nation building, they would call it building the nation. And uh, to me, that is uh, the idea that a private company can build the nation is, is essentially glossed as you know as the state-like function of the corporation. And there were people, and I, the first half of the book, really the character of B.J. Padsha, Burjurji Padsha is very important because oftentimes he was the one who was articulating the vision, the strategy of the group, at least in the surviving records. So we don't have, unfortunately, the papers of Jamshe and nor do we have very much from the Sons. Uh, much of it has been destroyed uh, or is not preserved in the archives. But um, uh, Padcha was, first of all, he was a big thinker. He was a, a scientist, a mathematician, a philosopher, a polymath, a classic kind of uh, late 19th century polymath. And he thought very deeply and consciously about the Tata's role, and especially after the First World War, when there was this boom in profits, he laid out this vision of how we are going to, uh, you know, uh, bring electricity to the villages and, you know, these very grand, uh, really economic planning visions of the kind that we would see 20, 30 years later under the Nehruvian state. So in that period, I think there was a, there was a very conscious sense that the Tatas, both in terms of the businesses they started, and the donations they made were providing India with the infrastructure of a modern nation. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, you see a much more defensive articulation of the Tata's contributions uh, because there's a lot of suspicion of private uh, business under the Nehruvian state. There's, there's political uh, issues and controversies. And a lot of that starts to be a little bit of a retrospective a thing so look at all the things we built, you know, in the first half of the of the century, and and how how great our achievements were. A little bit less of that forward looking vision, but I think in the early period, I would say that much of what I've written, if you take out some of the language, would be recognizable uh, to the to the leadership of the Tatas uh, at the time as this is what we're trying to do.
1: Um, I didn't read the book chronologically, so respecting the structure. I read chapter one and four together. I read chapter two and five together and three and six together. So I could trace the continuity as well between the themes. Um, And and the chapters one and four that focus on what you call the extraterritorial uh, connections um, that the Tatas cultivated to run their business, right? Um, Now, Tatas were an Indian firm, but one that relied on global financial connections, um, which in a way made their rise anomalous under um, a politics of Swadeshi, which which emphasized autonomy and self-sufficiency, not partnerships and connections, right? Mm -hmm. What did the Tatas rise reveal about Swadeshi, its different meanings and understandings and its politics at that time?
0: Well, I think that one of the things is that I, I draw this distinction in the book between the economic and political meanings of Swadeshi. And I think that, of course, those meanings were always there together. And, you know, I'm working now on an article about uh, Swadeshi uh, political economists, many of them mm-hmm. Bengali, writing in the aftermath of that original Swadeshi movement and into the interwar period, and people like Binoy Kumar Sharkar. And these people were very aware that for India to develop, there needed to be finance and investment from abroad, but that uh, was, as you know, is inevitable. Was a political stance. It was a political stance in a colonized country in which Britain still uh, pulled the strings mm-hmm. uh, and could uh, could pull those strings to its own advantage when it comes to the kinds of technical and financial collaborations that Indians could pursue. So one of the interesting things for me was to look at how the Tatas relied on the U.S. from a very early period to act as a counterweight to the British empire and then to act uh, Mm -hmm. as a counterweight to the Soviet Union in the Nehruvian period. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. being a fairly distant um, country, a, a fairly, Um, Uninterested until the Cold War in the geopolitics uh, of British India, but one in which a lot of the technology, for example, for the steel plant that was required uh, or for the hydro transmission lines and generators and so on, it was the U.S. could provide that technology and Jamshichi deliberately cultivated uh, American connections. he went to the US, met with uh, politicians and industrialists in the. US. Um, and uh, also in the realm of philanthropy, you know, Padcha went to mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins to see what you know what a higher edu- what a higher uh, education institution should look like. did
1: not
0: he did not model it on London or on Berlin or or mm-hmm. any other. place. Um, so these are choices that were made, but they also exist within this larger, uh uh, logic of uh of diversifying of broadening your options and of making sure that uh you are as open as you can be to whatever uh, is going on in the world whether it is uh and sometimes these that openness comes at a price so the Swadeshi f- uh, founding of TISCO, the Tata Iron and Steel Company, in 1907, is a perfect example. It's told as a heroic story of uh, Indian princes and the Indian public subscribing the shares out of patriotic duty. Often, mm.
1: uh,
0: it's told like that. But of course, it, it, this only comes about after the Tatas have tried to obtain funding in London and been turned down. So there, it's not the case that the Tatas are. Are looking to to uh as uh, to the U.S. or elsewhere as a counterweight to the British. The British are not interested in in financing the steel plant, um, and then they go to the U.S. But there's a panic uh, on the Wall Street in 1907, so that funding falls through, and then they go to to subscribe the the share capital in Bombay and and Dada Bhai Naroji, for example, the nationalist leader, author of the uh, drain theory, you know, talks to Shichi and he tries to convince him to to go to the uh, to domestic pools of capital first. And Jumshichi mm-hmm. says, no, no, you don't understand. We can't just do that. You know, we have to we have to go out there and see and see what's out there. And it becomes a kind of last resort. So that exchange, I think, is interesting in the in the book, because I think it indicates that uh, I think it's very possible to take a very simplistic reading. Uh, or rather, I should say, an economistic reading, which may be a simplistic mm-hmm. reading of this, and to say, well, of course, they're going to go to where the best deal is. Mm-hmm. But it's not so. It, that may be happening a lot of the time, if not most of the time. But that is a decision that has always has political consequences in this period. And so, for example, when the Tatas uh, sell the controlling share of the hydro managing agencies. They are pilloried in the nationalist press and even uh, nationalist business leaders like Takodas are telling them, this is a bad idea. It's a bad look for a Swadeshi enterprise to be owned by Americans. Um, and so I think that there is a real tension between the idea, first of all, that the Tatas are doing this on their own, out of pure entrepreneurial self-sufficiency and genius, uh, or out of this kind of purely political patriotic duty um, and so I think that those uh, those aspects are in tension with the economic logic of who has the stuff we need and who's going to give us the best deal for it.
1: I, I mean, I was I was really struck by the the reliance and preference for American financial support, um, which which you call in the book as, and I quote here, technologically necessary and strategically useful. Yeah. Um, it it, I mean, it looks like the capitalists with, with Tata they were they appreciated America's rise uh, far more than a lot of the other actors, especially the, the political actors in India, and what that would mean for not just their interests but for India's economy as well.
0: Right? Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. and I think the strategic utility is most evident in the Cold War period when mm-hmm. uh, the Bilai plant, regardless of how important it was or wasn't to the overall kind of macroeconomic picture Mm -hmm. in India of the late 50s is certainly symbolically very important for Nehru. And it's uh, very frightening to to the cold warriors in DC. Um, But the Tatas seize on this and they get funding and they Mm -hmm. get support uh, for the expansion program at Tisco in 1958 Mm -hmm. from the US. Um, But I think that it it goes far beyond strategic. Duty. I think you're right. It goes to the fact that in in a lot of ways, Tata, like many other uh, business groups uh, throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, there are many business groups. Uh, you know, we can. Uh, I give. I think I mentioned in the book the example of the uh, the Michelin, the French tire company.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and the critics of Michelin in the 30s said, "You are Americanists. You are." you are you are the you are importing into our country the uh, uh the the, the fordist the principles and mm-hmm. the american system of mass production and rationalization and and indian intellectuals are very aware, aware of this and so um, uh, sharkar who i mentioned I mentioned him because I'm writing this article, but now about him, so he's fresh in my mind. He says exactly this, he says Tata is Americanism and the rationalization of production and vertical integration and the application of uh, technology and uh, management science. This is what Tata represents for India. And I think that goes far, far beyond mere uh, strategic utility. I think it is also an affinity between the Tatas and the American uh, industrial uh, and economic system that they seek to, uh, not replicate, but they seek to uh, kind of instantiate as it were in India.
1: Uh, the second and fifth chapters look at, as as, we, as you mentioned earlier, Tatas' um, sovereign, quasi-sovereign nature and their activities over land, labor and resources in Jamshedpur which was the key focus uh, in the book on how they use colonial laws to achieve certain Mm. um, objectives. Um, And the fifth chapter looks at the use of expertise, foreign expertise from social scientists and other experts to manage labor and other management issues that they were experiencing. I I was struck by their reliance on these foreign aspects, laws, research, ideas or theories to to deal with really thorny local issues Mm. and the gaps and problems that could come out of that, right? Um, So talk to us about their open attitude to to this research, to the London School of Economics, to Mm -hmm. experts from other parts of the West uh, coming in and and advising them despite some internal dissent and resistance um, to these experts.
0: Yeah, this is a, a through line throughout uh, the history of the group is, is the use of expertise and, and the use in particular of foreign expertise. And the, the London School of Economic story is very interesting because it connects to philanthropy, which I suspect you'll, you'll mm. ask about next. But um, it was it was originally not not supposed to be a connection. The ta- uh, Ratanji Tata, the son of Jamshedji, had donated money to the LSE to fund poverty research in east london right so well they they funded this poverty research center at the lse which did most of its work in the east end of london and had uh, the webs were affiliated and lt hobhouse and all of these famous kind of edwardian social scientists the fabians and the liberals it was a very interesting kind of mix of people it had nothing to do with india
1: mm-hmm.
0: but when the town of jamshedpur came up in the aftermath of uh, the First World War. There were lots of people moving. Uh, I forget the number, but uh, I think there were around twenty thousand people there already by the end of the war. Something, or maybe fifty thousand. Certainly, a lot of uh, people had moved there within the space of a decade. And it was this thriving, large industrial town with a population uh, of workers coming from across India, but also having to well, having to negotiate first of all the differences among those people. Uh, um, in terms of where they lived, how the occupational designations, their places of worship, uh, or the planning of the town, all these things, but also in terms of how this entire new society, shall we say, uh, being built there, how that interacted with the local Adivasi population, most of whom had been uh, kicked off, either kicked off the land or brought in uh, from surrounding regions in Jharkhand or in in, in Chhattisgarh, central India, um, mm-hmm. as the kind of lowest skilled rung of workers. So you have this extremely complex uh, and rapidly changing social landscape, which requires uh, sociologists <laughs> to mm-hmm. and experts to, and not just sociologists, but uh, health authorities, and engineers, and all of these different, uh, and uh, management people, basically, people to do time motion studies and efficiency studies and these kinds of things. Um, and so they turn to the LSE mm-hmm. uh, as uh, to help them in this regard. And we see this again in the 1950s, uh, when they invite various experts uh, from the UK mm-hmm. and the US to advise uh, this is now a much more complex managerial situation mm-hmm. where you have production has grown more complex, the workforce is larger, the rise of trade unionism has come in and notions of collective bargaining, which they now have to decide how to respond to. So um, they invite people who talk to them about uh, uh, about those things, about how unions, uh, how the management labor relationship should work, about different kinds of alternative structures that can be created within the company to kind of uh, rival and outflank the unions uh, in terms of communicating directly with the workers. So all of these uh, require people to come in and to advise. But this advice is not always followed. So in the case of the webs and the Fabians and the LSE people, they make all these recommendations, which then some of the same people like Pacha who had first invited Mm -hmm. them to come they say, well, we don't like your conclusions. We don't like that you suggest, for example, you know, this uh, this many uh, hours of work. You know, limiting the hours of work because, uh, or, or if they suggest, for example. Um, Keeping better records. One of the things. This is one of the things mm-hmm. that uh, one of the ex- the experts will propose is that well, you have a lot of absenteeism, you have a lot of irregular attendance, so you have to keep better records. They say, well, we can't keep better records because we have a mobile and shifting population of these adivasi workers. Mm-hmm somebody would say you need to pay such and such higher wages they will say no we don't want to pay higher wages because the workers don't need higher wages they wouldn't know what to do with their wages so we need to provide them with other things but not wages um or we need somebody says we need to do collective bargaining and they say no we don't want to do collective bargaining we want to do this other thing because this is what conditions in india require so um i think that there is a i think that we should definitely acknowledge that the Tatas are um, to be, they, they stand out for mm-hmm. their continual usage of foreign expertise without at the same time assuming that a lot of what these experts wrote got put into practice. So there is this dynamic. Uh, and in fact, one of the um, insiders within the company that was quite critical of what was going on in Tatas in the 1950s, a man called MD Madan, said uh we have attended he says he he writes very eloquently he says we have a bad tendency of always inviting the experts in uh and and then when they tell us what to do we say oh things here are different you just don't understand <laughs> right so I think for me this is a very um uh dynamic process and one which I think is not too dissimilar to any of us that have tried to uh you know, sh- to do, you know, to to work internationally across borders, to do business across different corporate cultures, there are always these ideas of difference, you know, you can't call in, you know, you can't work these kinds of hours or do this kind of thing in this or that setting. And um, speaking from the perspective of the present, I think that we need to be a little bit more intentional with how we think about how these ideas of difference develop you know, uh, about the and how ideas of corporate cultures, you know, Americans work like this, Indians work like this, Japanese work like this, mm-hmm. uh, about how these are perpetuated and uh, contested, right? Because uh, there's going to be argument and debate about these, uh, these ideas at every mm-hmm. stage of the interaction between management, labor and consultants mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in any industry.
1: Um, one interesting nugget in this chapter that you write about is the Relationship between JRD Tata and anthropologist Vario Elwin, yeah, uh, and of Elwin's support for Tata's work and Tata's funding of Elwin, uh, and how Elwin exempted Tata from any blame, um, particularly how over how industrial activity was affecting and harming rural life. Um, I thought that, that was quite interesting.
0: Yeah, this is, this is uh, actually a perfect example of one of the things I, I like to do in the book, which is I think that the thing about Elwin that not a lot of people know about is that he was actually supported financially by the Tata Trusts early mm-hmm. on in his ethnographic uh, investigations. And so the book on the Agaria tribe, it's a tribe of iron smelters that he wrote, um, which is a pioneering ethnography uh, of this group, mm-hmm. Uh, was dedicated to uh, J.R.D. Tata, and so and then he wrote a kind of authorized mm-hmm. uh, uh, anniversary. Uh, I think it's a Jubilee, I forget which whichever Jubilee the 50th anniversary is, uh, I think it's the golden Jubilee. Anyway, uh, he wrote an anniversary history called the story of Tata Steel from 1907 to 1957, uh, in which he's of course, highly praised, praises the company in in exalted terms. And this is of course, during that Cold War period where there's a massive strike going on that's led by the communist party. And uh, there's a lot of tension in jamshedpur when that book comes out uh and so uh, it it serves as this kind of uh um, it bolsters the tata spirit shall we say to have this out there and it would be very easy to say everything that elwin writes is insincere because he's being paid a commission Mm -hmm. to do it but what i actually show in uh or or you could say there's nothing to do with it you could say Mm -hmm. there's no connection between Elwin's anthropological work and whatever he wrote, uh, you know. It's he he wrote whatever he wanted about the Agaria, but he just thanked JRD because, you know, because it was his patron. But I think that there's actually a profound affinity between uh, how Elwin saw um, modernization, to call it that way, and historical change among the uh, among the peoples that he studied. So, for example. As an anthropologist he was he was fascinated by the idea that traditional ways of life are passing. Mm-hmm. Um traditional industries are being replaced by machine industries. Iron smelting is being replaced by large scale steel manufacturing. And so this is a problematic for him. This is not, you know, he's not going to be either entirely lamenting this or celebrating it, but he's going to be grappling with it and and wrestling with it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and his engagement with he tries to, I believe, from I haven't looked too much into Ellen and haven't read too much into depth of of, uh, of what his views were. But from what I can see from the writings that I've seen, I think he genuinely wants to believe that uh, the large scale steel manufacturing that Tata makes, which is really just a copy, if you will, mm. of Pittsburgh plants. I mean, the, there's nothing in the steelmaking process of Tata that is indigenous in any way, but he wants to root it in the land. He wants mm-hmm. to make a connection between the people who were there before and India's industrial future, right? Mm-hmm. So we can we can look at that connection and say, well, it's bogus or it's it's not persuasive, or. Uh, but I think he was trying to do that. And so this is what I call at different points in the book, the idea that there's autonomous logics or autonomous networks of knowledge that are interspersed, interweaved with the Tata story of what the Tatas are doing and what's good for their interests. Mm-hmm. And it may be that the Tatas don't really care what Elwin thinks uh, on his own time, but he is drawn into his concerns as an anthropologist, are drawn into what the Tatas are doing and what the Tatas uh, represent. So I think we need to take both of those things seriously. We need to take... Uh, Elwin's intellectual history seriously and we need to take the Tatas' uh, uh, kind of investments and uh, and their interests seriously and look at them together.
1: Uh, so the last three chapters look at the period after World War II, so how the Tata negotiated the transition from colonial rule to the nation-state uh, under a very competitive, polarizing, geopolitical environment. Um, and here the first kind of big challenge was on uh, India's own national development um, plans and agenda. Uh, and, and here I have to ask about the Bombay Plan, which yeah, sure. was a plan <laughs> authored by eight businessmen, including J.R. Tata, that advanced a vision for India's economic development, um, giving the state a leading role. Um, so why did the Tata sign on despite having, as you mentioned in the book, several key assets in industries like steel, power, and airlines? Um, This is,
0: you know, one of the big questions that has been debated for a long time. And there are some people who see, uh, you know, some people like uh, Vivek Chibber who see the Bombay plan as you know, as, uh, well, he, he takes it in different stages. So he says uh, at the beginning, they might have been more sincere than at the end, um, they might have, but he sees this kind of consistent logic of uh, they want state support, but uh, not state discipline. So that is Chibber's answer. Um, there's another a school of thought that looks at this as a genuine kind of nation building commitment, you know, um, uh, Aditya Mukerji and 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 others. So I uh, I I don't uh, have I think elements of both are true. I do lean a bit more toward the Chibber position, just in terms of as I said before, not taking that kind of nationalist consciousness uh, too much at face value. But I think that in terms of interests, I certainly do think that uh, the idea of the state coming in to support industry uh, and a kind of mutually beneficial relationship between state and capital in independent India with the British out of the picture is definitely uh, something that's on the minds of the Tatas when they write this document. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to note that they are not neoliberals. They're not even necessarily by that stage classical liberals. Um, The state had always been involved in some way or another in supporting their industries, including, uh, of course, Jamshedpur, gets off the ground with the government purchase mm-hmm. of uh, of steel rails that that kind of gets them uh, into the into the blacks, so to speak. In the beginning, um, there's also a, an intellectual story which which Ameida um, has traced in her Bombay Plan mm-hmm. book of people, uh, uh, the people who wrote the experts, the Tata experts, people like John Matai, you know, who wrote mm-hmm. the plan were, had studied at LSE with the Fabians, uh, had begun to read Keynes, you know, Birla was really, G.D. Birla was really into the idea of deficit financing and and throwing away the kind of fiscal shackles, right? So these were, these were bold, progressive ideas for a class that thought themselves bold and progressive and forward-looking. And they tried to align with where they thought uh, the political economy of the state was heading, and tried to get to get an early foot in that door, and tried to claim a seat at the table. I think one of the things I try to do in the book with the Bombay Plan is to stress the significance of the foreign capital factor, which I think the foreign capital factor, in terms of uh, how open India would be to those to that extraterritorial dimension, which I discussed in those uh, in those chapters. Uh, there were some differences there that kind of call into question the idea that, the, for example, I think one of the problems with the Chibber analysis is the idea that the business class operates and speaks in one voice and that they want, they, all of them want this thing and they pursue it. Each one of them pursues it, pursues that interest at every stage. So I think I, I try to show how differences between the Tatas and the Birla's on the question of foreign aid and and foreign investment are quite deep and they start quite early, very soon after uh, the publication of the Bombay Plan and continue and deepen into the 1950s as well as the closeness that they have with the Nairobian states. The Tatas from a very early stage, I would say 1947, 48, three years after the Bombay Plan, just uh, right on the cusp or right after independence, the Tatas, essentially begin to distance themselves from the state whereas birla remains a very close ally of nehru and works very much in that state capital mode throughout the 1950s of seeing that alliance between his group and the party and the plan as 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 being as being very close whereas the tatas begin to pursue their own agenda to go it alone as i call it uh, in the book, from an early state, so I think the Bombay Plan is a moment. You know, it's it's a, it's a it's a very specific moment that doesn't last a very long time, and that is part of a longer history of of uh, of Indian business negotiating that transition from empire to nation state, and also negotiating differences and conflicts within within them within them as a business class, and. Um, so, uh, and I and I must say, I'm a little bit disheartened by some of the uh, work that's come out recently about the Bombay Plan, which attempts to read a lot of things backward into it. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, Gurcharandas has written very dismissively of the Bombay mm-hmm. planners as fools and idiots who committed suicide, you know, by by shackling themselves to the state. And I think that it's very easy from a post-91 perspective. To to look back and 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 judge them on this, uh, it's also I think a little bit unrealistic to yearn for the bomb. There's another genre which of thinking which yearns for the Bombay Plan, which says, "Well, uh, Indian business now doesn't have a coherent progressive uh, vision of development, and they need to go back and write another Bombay Plan." Well, it it may be that conditions today are very very different in terms of both what the situation was then and what the future possibilities for expansion and development were then versus what they are now. So I think I would say that I try to do in this book, I try to look at the Bombay plan as much as I can within its own time and not look at it either as a foolish uh, uh, mistake or as this kind of panacea that everybody should do a Bombay plan, you know, whenever uh, we want business to be better than it is.
1: No, and I, and I must say that was the orthodoxy after the war, right? especially in mm-hmm. East and Southeast Asia, where you saw the state collaborating, um, yes. carving out very uh, promising relationships with their industrial sectors, right? whether that's Korea, Japan, or other parts of East and Southeast Asia, that was very much part of the zeitgeist then. Right. So it um, was
0: it was. And, and I think that uh, in some respects, I think this is something that, for example, GRD Tata talked mm-hmm. about throughout much of the post-independence period that he admired that type of model mm-hmm. of development. But I think that uh, we also should recognize that conditions in those countries were quite uh, different. Uh, and so this is, of course, is a debate that I'm not qua- qualified to judge uh, in terms of how applicable that model would have been to India. But um, I-, I do think that I certainly think that the, the differences and uh, political differences and conflicts within Indian business, uh, perhaps were one factor that prevented that kind of productive relationship.
1: Um, going on. What was the relationship between Tata, J.R.D. Tata and Nehru-like, because in the book, you note tension and frustration at certain points between both individuals, particularly over the plan. And then I think the nationalization of Air India. Yes. And certain it's... other moments where I think Nehru just didn't understand J.R.D.'s um, grievances. And my guess was those white sources, right?
0: yeah i think it was a it was a relationship that uh was complex and tense but i think there was ultimately um there was a shared ground um you know it's very interesting because in some ways i think that In the post-emergency period, uh, I I think, or in the emergency period and immediately after, despite the fact that if you looked at the early 70s, the relationship between Nehru and Indira Gandhi was, uh, between, excuse me, J.R.D. and Indira Gandhi seemed to be much more conflictual and much more opposed. I mean, there was, in the early 70s, when I think uh, Mrs. Gandhi had moved, uh, at least rhetorically speaking, very left, uh, uh there was uh, really a, a, a kind of like almost a state of open warfare right between the tatas and the government in public right and even in private um, but actually ironically i think that relationship ended up being much closer pragmatically speaking uh in the long run and viewed from from perspective uh of distance you know, uh, uh, then, uh, because because Mrs. Gandhi came around to understanding the idea that she should rely on the private sector for growth. And it was ultimately, uh, you know, th- this is uh, very much into the weeds, but it was ultimately, you know, the Dijanta government because of Moraji Desai and George Fernandez who was a big enemy of the Tatas that actually ended up, that was the real open warfare once Mrs. Gandhi was out of power but if you go back at nero i think that you know i'm i'm not a specialist in nero and i'm not a great psychoanalyzer of nero but uh, but nero was certainly somebody who was um driven by in my view at least was driven by a f- by a coherent philosophical worldview and he kind of meant what he said mm-hmm. unlike his daughter right and so i think that uh, in i think that's where a lot of the differences between JRD and Nehru came from. It was really a contest of ideas, uh, a contest of ideas about development and about India's future, where ultimately the two of them just couldn't understand the foundations of where the other person was coming from. Whereas I think Mrs. Gandhi was much more, shall we say, pragmatic Mm -hmm. and uh, non-ideological and willing to bend and shift Mm -hmm. and meet people uh, halfway um, and I think, to to a great extent, this was also true of Nero. And we cannot forget the many compromises in Nairobian industrial policy, from what was announced in 1948 to how much, for example, private activity was allowed under the this even under the second plan, uh, despite what they had said. And so for critics of Nero on the left, they thought he was too accommodating and too pragmatic. But I think, the, on a personal level, I think J.R.D. and Nero were both. Uh, Very, uh, They're both kind of these patrician figures, these intellectual Mm -hmm. figures, but also people who believed uh, strongly in ideas. And uh, their relationship, I think, was therefore much more conflictual than uh, the relationship of the Tatas with pretty much every other government that came after, which had, shall we say, less of this uh, sound philosophy behind it.
1: I want to ask one more thing before we move on uh, about the 1950s. Especially the late 1950s. Um, we generally today we understand that you know, India's economic boom began in the 80s. Um, there's been some work of late that suggests that it was the emergency period right after mm-hmm. the changes that were made. But in your book, you 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 chronicle this very important period in the late 1950s when the government made some changes to the economy, um, removing some shackles. On the private sector, which resulted in a period—I wouldn't say of um, high growth, but yeah. mo- but moderate to impressive growth, right? Yes. How important yes. was that was that period, the, the late nineteen fifties, to what happened later? I'm just
0: very uh, uh, grateful you bring this up because I think it's a story that that most people uh, should know about. I think that we should pay attention to the variation in growth rates. In yeah. the post-independence, but I think many people, people who are not, uh, you know, fine-grained economic historians or specialists on numbers, which I'm not either, but I think in, in kind of general, uh, educated uh, discourse, it's assumed that there was this that there were 30, 40 years of anemic Hindu growth or whatever, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the explosion. Whether you want to call, mm-hmm. say the explosion is 91 or or 79 or whatever, but I think that we need to to understand that that period of the late 50s uh, was a time of pretty robust growth i don't have the figures but uh, mm-hmm. we're talking about 4 or 5% things like mm-hmm. that uh which and a period actually which um uh, compared to what came before was quite sure. remarkable mm-hmm. um so compared to the, the depression and uh, uh and and after and i do think that uh, one of the precipitating events of this that i discuss in the book is the foreign exchange crisis mm-hmm. of 57 58 which uh, is is a sad moment and 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 uh, a dangerous moment for the Indian state, but one which allows it to 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 essentially uh, allow more private uh, more private sector growth. Um, the way that growth gets concentrated is another story that we've forgotten about, and I've written um, a short piece on the India Forum if re- if uh, listeners want to read it about Arke uh, Hazari and his investigations into monopolies and concentration, which is, of course, a topic of great interest to us today. Uh, and all I'll say here about Hazari is that he's this uh, this concentration is coming during a boom time, the boom time of the late 50s and early 60s. And I think what I would like to see more of in the future is I certainly would like to see more work done in, in Indian economic history on the ni- the early 1970s and to really disentangle some of the reasons why we see a major uh, hit to growth in that decade, uh, and I think the oil shocks have a large—it's mm-hmm. a large reason of why it happens. But there, are, there are other things going on uh, with the rupee and so on in the late '60s, uh, and uh, and also there might be some some imbalances in that late '50s Nehruvian model that finally come home to roost. And again, I'm not a specialist uh, to be able to to. Uh, teased all those out. But I think that we do need to remember that in a lot of ways, the 1970s were an anomalously bad time. Uh, and uh, we have to look at what happened after what happened before with that in mind.
1: Um, so let's move on. <laughs> There's a lot more in the book. Uh, so Chapter three looks at Tata's philanthropy, a char- um, charitable giving before independence uh, and of the creation of some very important Educational and research institutions like the Indian Institute of Science, uh, TISS, um, CIFR. What was the logic behind these institutions and, and how embedded or aligned were they initially with the Tata's own agenda?
0: So I think as I said before I think uh I, I call it knowledge infrastructure they would have called it nation part of nation building just as much as the steel plant or the hydro dams uh, were or that or air india was um I think that it, 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 there is both an instrumental dimension which actually sometimes doesn't quite get realized so uh the indian institute of science in bangalore does not really act as a kind of R&D outpost of Tata mm-hmm. steel. Although there, there is a metallurgical uh, uh, laboratory in Jamshedpur, and there is, I believe, a small section of IISC that, that uh, works on that kind of engineering that might be useful to, to produce uh, uh, talent or knowledge for the Tatas. But it's really not that instrumental. And when you go to something like TIFR, which is fundamental research, It really is not at all uh, related, seemingly, to what the Tatas are doing in business. Uh, TIS is a more complex case. That's somewhere in between because TIS provides labor officers and welfare officers. uh, And this is the 20s and 30s are a time of significant industrial conflict in Bombay where mm-hmm. uh, you do need trained personnel to like uh, th- these locally trained experts rather than foreign experts to actually go on the factory floor and, and work to resolve these conflicts. And TIS under the guidance of the its American director, Clifford uh, Manchart is very much, is, he's explicitly saying we are going to be the, the mediators and the middlemen between labor and capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that that is the instrumental there. But even there, TIS grows out of investments in sociological and social scientific research that had gone back to that LSE donation which was 1912 and then this is 1933 and then you have the story of um, Tata's investments in science and medicine which are not as uh, and biological science and medicine which are not as well known uh, uh, as they should be you know the the uh, fruitless attempt to set up a school of tropical medicine, which Mm -hmm. was to be directed by Hafkin, the bacteriologist that had developed a plague vaccine during the third plague pandemic. Um, And uh, the uh, leukemia initiative, um, the Lady Tata Memorial Trust, which was because Dorabji's wife died of leukemia, and then which leads to the Mm -hmm. cancer hospital. So I would say that there is, is, and I stress this in the book, a semi-autonomous, logic that once the Tatas had be- had begun to direct their philanthropy towards basic science, fundamental science, or even applied sciences that may not be necessarily applicable to what they're doing, uh, that creates a kind of a snowball effect, a, a-, a series of networks that enrich each other uh, over time And what we see by the 1940s and 50s is these various institutions collaborating with each other. You know, the cancer hospital, working Mm -hmm. with TIFR, working with TIS on various uh, uh, studies, you know, genetic studies uh, or, uh, you know, sharing um, material. And these are scientists in these institutions working uh, with each other, supported by the Tatas, but not necessarily under the guise of some uh, tata Master Plan, um, philanthropic master plan, and this is a dynamic that is, of course, quite familiar to uh, corporate philanthropy. You know, mm-hmm. um, once the the Ford Foundation becomes uh, or the Rockefeller Foundation becomes its own mm-hmm. uh, autonomous institution with its own logics and source of um, uh, a- a- and and influence that uh, kind of perpetuates itself. The one key difference is that Ford and Rockefeller and these other classic uh, foundations are separated fairly early on from the companies. Whereas the Tata Trusts continue to be mm-hmm. the majority shareholder in, uh, in Tata Suns and to exercise uh, more or less uh, involvement or control in what the businesses are doing. And so that relationship is quite opaque and uh, sometimes it facilitates some good things. And sometimes it can create some corporate governance problems. Uh, But I think that uh, that makes Tata a little bit different from these other other examples of philanthropy. But by and large, I think that you do see uh, that Tata philanthropy kind of stands on its own and it. Some people have written books on Tata philanthropy without mentioning much of what else the Tatas were doing. And I think that mm-hmm. is perfectly valid because you can look at these institutions on their own terms. But I, I tried to put them, of course, in the context of the story of the group.
1: Um, one side note in this chapter that you talk about is the critique that the Tatas received uh, from the Parsi community who yes. felt that the yes, Tatas yes. were not generous enough to them through their philanthropy. Um, how do they <laughs> rationalize this omission?
0: Yeah, so this is something which I should have mentioned in the previous answer, which is that all of these institutions are very self consciously and deliberately, purposively national in character. Mm-hmm. So they do not primarily serve the Parsi community. They do not primarily even serve the city of Bombay. Mm-hmm. And so this is part of the issue of why the IAC was not located in Bombay, mm-hmm. but it was located in Bangalore, it has issues about land and governance and the Um, Mysore was generous with the terms and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But uh, yes, uh, you're right that uh, many Parsi philanthropists donated to their own communities, either for religious or uh, cultural purposes or for um, uh, really practical uh, purposes, like the Goodriches-funded agricultural farms, you know, where Parsi-unemployed, could go work on the land or there was the Wadis founded lots of bogs you know that the houses um, uh, housing uh, uh, uh low-cost housing provision in bombay for because there's significant unemployment and distress in the parsi community in bombay in the 30s and it's instructive to see that the tata approach to this was to fund research into Parsi poverty and unemployment, and to do some of this practical you know, vocational training and, and things like that. But by and large, their answer was their engagement was always uh, one step removed from that direct action, direct voluntary relief, right? It was always a research, or it was always looking more widely at the problem or looking at the problem on a larger scale. Um, And I think that uh, you could look at this as, and even further than that, sometimes the philanthropy actually, I'm not going to say discriminated against, but, but was aggressively uh, uh, outwardly oriented. So even the leukemia trust, for example, was, Uh, not at all limited to Indians, most of the science it founded was by European scientists. So um, I think that sometimes one could look at this in different ways and one could look at it as uh, a shortcoming. Uh, One could look at, uh, uh, you know, that in in a poor country such as India, the Tatas could have done more for the very poorest in society. And some would look at it as saying, there's plenty of charity, but very little large scale visionary philanthropy and that's what India needed. So I think that uh, that is open to interpretation uh, and I personally find a lot of these initiatives uh, quite interesting. Uh, I, I I would even say admirable, but certainly to study they are um, to me much more fascinating than your traditional, uh, shall we say, or customary charity.
1: Um- Say 10, 15, 25 years from now, um, you or another scholar had the chance to add to um, the Tata's history. Um, what issues or themes do you think would feature in it as we move forward? Well,
0: you know, it's interesting because uh, in a lot of ways, this book, uh, you know, this book ends in the early, late 70s, early 80s it ends before liberalization with the exception of that last section the epilogue. Mm -hmm. And of all the criticisms that I've received, this is the one that Mm -hmm. comes up again and again and again. Uh, And it's one that I have had to defend and which I will continue to defend partly because I didn't have the archives Mm -hmm. to write an original story of the Tatas past this date. So in my ideal world, uh, Ratan Tata's papers will be added to the Tata Central Archives, <laughs> and uh, in you know it's remarkable, you know, just we have every piece of correspondence of JRD's for mm-hmm. uh, fifty years, you know, in that archive, and we mm-hmm. can write such a rich and 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 deep story using those materials. So my hope is that we will have the archival material to do that for uh, Ratan Tata's time from the 80s to the 2010s. Um, we, of course, have great uh, journalism. Uh, I mentioned uh, to you this book by Deepali Gupta Tata versus mystery on the recent conflict between uh, Ratan Tata and Cyrus Nishtri, which I think is very even-handed and very interesting and lots of original reporting that gives us a really, without those archival documents, gives us a really a granular picture of the struggles that the Tatas faced in the 2010s over global expansion versus Mm -hmm. domestic market, particular with the acquisition of chorus uh, uh, steel, which was used to be British steel, and then the difficulties that the European steel industry ran into after Brexit. Um, So I think that that story can be added to the stories that I've told about this, about the way the Tatas relate to the nation versus the world at large Mm -hmm. versus the global economy. I think the acquisition of Air India, which is a reacquisition, shall we say, <laughs> the, the return of Air India to its founders, uh, which is a decision that is, uh, uh, I wouldn't have predicted when I finished the book, uh, I would have thought it would always remain as a kind of, uh, uh, as uh, the Tatas would rest content with recalling their, their glorious past in aviation, and maybe they would keep doing vistara or keep doing whatever else they were doing kind of get back into that sector uh in a small scale way but i couldn't have imagined what would happen there um and i think that the way we would tell those stories right the way we 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 tell the stories of the global expansion in the pre covid pre uh you know pre ukraine uh, Post 2008 period, right? That that very specific period when the tatas were outwardly expanding and then facing these problems with that expansion, that's going to look, I think, very different 30 years from now. The decision to buy Air India is going to look very different 30 years from now. Uh, decisions to invest in, for example, green technology, or defense, or the AI sector. I mean, these are going to be these are, in my view, these are going to be the three main axes upon if if we think about uh Jamshechi's three dreams as they call them of electricity steel making and then you know um uh science uh, and uh and th- those kinds of knowledge infrastructure and so on um this would be this is the kind of new frontier right mm-hmm. um uh, and so how the tatas meet the challenges of these three sectors uh in a very different and unstable world from the where they were when i started to write about them and when i finished this book uh that's going to be uh, a very uh that's going to be a story that uh, is going to have to be told uh, by someone else with new materials and with new perspective mm-hmm. right and i was very concerned you know as i was writing the book especially as that uh, Ratan mystery scandal broke out, I was mm-hmm. I was wondering, what well, what's going to happen to the tatas by the time I publish this book, you know, is, are, are people going to see them differently, as when I started writing and I started researching and in, in writing in 2011-2012, mm-hmm. uh, there was a tatas were viewed differently, and their prospects are viewed differently than uh, a decade later. So I think that that is, of course, something that as a historian, I can't predict. But I do think that uh, the longevity is remarkable. And I certainly would bet on the Tatas being around uh, uh, for a while longer and uh, to meet some of the challenges in the in for, uh, innovation in those sectors and to meet India's uh, role in the global economy and to continue to be on that frontier between India and the world. Um, But uh, exactly for how long and how well they will do that, I can not say.
1: You're right in the conclusion, and I quote here, at the time of writing, the unprecedented worldwide economic economic contraction caused by the COVID-19 pandemic is likely to push data even deeper within the borders of the nation. Um, And it looks like that's happening now. Um, Tata just announced um, a plan to invest $90 billion in new Mm -hmm. industries like semiconductors, electric vehicles, batteries, renewables, and e-commerce. So I I guess the need to seek and secure foreign capital um, for the reputational status of the company may not be as important as it once was. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and I obviously, you know, I should say that I wrote that conclusion in, Late March 2020, so mm-hmm. I had to to restrain myself from from the more apocalyptic predictions which were going around at the time, and I'm I'm glad I did. Although I couldn't have foreseen uh, the subsequent uh, crises, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the the inflationary year of 2021, and then of course uh, the the geopolitical instability uh, caused by the, the the Ukraine war, and so these things also have played a role in pushing uh, uh, Tata inward. Although I would argue, as historians always like to say, things started earlier than you think, you know, already by the late, that whole Brexit uh, chorus uh, issue and the issue of scaling down some of the global acquisitions that had been going on already in the late 2010s as a result of that 2008 uh, uh, crisis. So um, I do think that much depends on uh, on the state of the Indian economy as a mm-hmm. whole and whether uh, the market will be able to sustain those big investments and those big plays that the Tatas are trying to make. And I do have confidence that the Tatas will make big plays. And I think that that is their, um, their MO throughout history has been to to rise and meet the moment, but um, sometimes the moment doesn't meet them, right? So, uh, I would—it certainly would be—would be interesting to see uh, how this uh, initiative plays out. But I think the direction of travel is is uh, very clear.
1: Mercia, um, what was the hardest part of writing the book? Um,
0: I think the hardest part was what I described earlier. The the setting then the boundaries uh, uh, of the thematic versus uh keeping Tatas in focus, what to include, what to leave out, when to begin, when to end, um and to resist uh, and I said this to somebody else you know um uh, who is asking me about the process of writing, and you know any writing ultimately it it is of course a Scientific or quasi-scientific task, you have some rigor and some rules that you follow and procedures, but it is also a creative act, right? And writing history and writing a book uh, versus, say, an article is or something or a research report is is a is a fundamentally a creative act. And every creator, uh, and of course, it's also a book is a product that goes to a market, <laughs> and so it's it's a, it's a creative pro- a product with an audience, and it's a commodity with a market. Right, so for me, it was uh, the balance for for me was to uh, give the people what they want and what they expect when they pick up a book on Tata, but also to to stay true to what I wanted to say. And so for me, that idea that I wouldn't go past 1980, that I wouldn't write a, a chapter based on. You know, I have a a, a, an enormous bank of articles about the Tatas from 2011 to 2021. Uh, Basically, I had a Google alert, and every article written in every newspaper about Tata, I saved onto my hard drive. So that's that's in my own archive, you know. And I could have written a chapter Mm -hmm. based on what I read about in in newspapers or had gone to interview people and received kind of the official line on various things from from people and i could have written a long chapter uh on the basis of those materials but i felt that that would be radically different from the rest of the book i felt that it that in a lot of ways as i'm not trained either as a journalist or as an anthropologist or as a political scientist or economist i couldn't do justice to to that material even if i I would have to be a different person, a different scholar to do it. So I decided not to do it, even though that violated the principle of giving people uh, what they want. They want to know about 91, about the Bombay club, about, mm-hmm. you know, about chorus, about the inside, about uh, Brexit, about mystery. They want to know mm-hmm. all these things. And in this, there are different books, which some of which I've recommended, which they can go to, to get those things. And I would say that's another lesson that I would give to, to aspiring, historians or writers is that you are also part of a wider community and you don't have to do anything yourself so this my book is not the definitive book on tata there will be people writing on tata in the future there are other people writing on tata now not just historians but many many other people so my book is meant to reflect my perspective my research my voice um, as well as to provide that history of tata that i believe that people needed and wanted So I think striking that balance is a very difficult thing. And it's caused me uh, uh, years of anxiety, years which are now, at least in this respect, over. But so I'm not trying to minimize it or to say that I found the perfect solution, but that uh, tension and anxiety is there.
1: And finally, what are you working on now?
0: So right now, I'm working on a series of articles which uh, are related to the book, Uh, one of which I mentioned is the article on uh, uh, Indian political economists in the interwar period and how they looked at Tata. So it's looking at Tata Mm. from the outside, what Tata meant to uh, Indian economic thought. Um, I'm also working on a series of articles that go into more depth on Jamshedpur, uh, Mm. uh, in particular on... This uh, on Jamshitpur is a kind of cosmopolitan town, but one that has also been plagued by communal violence several times throughout its history Uh, and an article on gender uh, and labor. Not a lot of people know how important women workers were in the Tata mines and in the Tata plants and also how much much of that expertise, which we talked about, uh, centered on the figure of the woman worker. I've also written something on photography, which expands on on what's in the book uh, on documentary photography in the Tata Steel plant, and my next project is uh, my next book length project is going to be a very different type of project that um, kind of builds on the last chapter of the book where I talk about uh, the ideas of a socially responsible business, which began to be debated in India in the 50s and 60s, trying to integrate Gandhian thought with uh, Western, you know, European and American management thinking at a time when there was this belief that the nature of the corporation could and should be reinvented uh, and reimagined for the modern age. So I would like to trace those ideas and those networks of people thinking about those things from, say, the the 1950s to the 1970s, but on a more global scale. So a lot of that will involve looking uh, at looking with fresh eyes at things like Gandhian trusteeship, uh, which is something that people write a lot about. But I would say in a very narrow uh, uh, confine of you know what Gandhi thought or you know Gandhian movements within India. But I'm trying to take that idea and look at its resonances and affinities across the world with different groups of people who are thinking along similar lines of how to play around with and potentially even transform the corporate form as we know it. So that's my uh, next book project, which uh, who knows when that will be finished. The Tata project took uh, 10 years from beginning to end. So uh, I I won't hazard a guess as to how long this next one will take.
1: Um, Mercia, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And that was Mircea Rayanu, the author of Tata, the global corporation that built Indian capitalism. I'm Karthik Najipan, and you've been listening the Lake podcast.